Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and welcome to the special two-part episode of Ukraine, the latest. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. During our recent trip to the United States, I had the pleasure of visiting Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., to moderate a conversation between a group of academics. We presented the discussion and the questions from the listeners in the room in two parts. In the first, we discussed the politics of modern Russia, Vladimir Putin's influence on it, and how it may change in the future. In the second, we looked closer at the relationship between Israel and Ukraine, the history of Judaism in the country, and diplomacy between the two countries. I started our first discussion by asking each panellist to introduce themselves. Jonathan Lincoln. I'm the director for the uh, Center for Jewish Civilization at the School of Foreign Service here at Georgetown. I'm new in this position and I come from practice. I spent about 15, 16 years working with the United Nations as a diplomat based almost entirely in uh, the Middle East, North Africa, East Africa. And uh, my most recent posting was in Jerusalem, working with the United Nations Special Coordinator's Office, but a regional focus on Israel, the Palestinians, but of course, the wider region as well. And very keen to uh, participate in this discussion as far as the issues that we're talking about relate to Israel and, and Israel's particular positioning, which I think there are a number of interesting aspects to explore. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Maria Snigavaya. I'm um, a postdoctoral fellow here at uh, Ceres at Georgetown, as well as a senior fellow in Russia and Eurasia at Center for Strategic International Studies. I'm from Russia originally, but I've been living in the United States for over 12 years. And throughout most of the time, I've been studying Russia's domestic and foreign policy, trying to understand what the hell is going on. Still working on this. I'm Diana Dumitro. I'm the chair of Romanian studies here at Georgetown University. My area of my research and what I'm also trying to teach is directly connected to the Jewish history and history of the Holocaust. This is what I've been working extensively and including the Holocaust in Ukraine, but also Holocaust in uh, Romanian territory. Also, currently, I work on post-Jewish life and the Stalinism. So I have a big expertise on these areas, and this is what I'm mostly interested in, looking at the impact of the war on Jewish life in Ukraine and outside Ukraine. Hi, I'm Michael David Fox. I am the director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies here at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. I am a historian by training, a historian of 20th century Russia-Soviet Union, and I have written on Bolshevism, Stalinism, the Nazi occupation of Soviet territories in World War II, and other depths of the 20th century. And I am interested in having traveled to post-Soviet Russia almost every year for 30 years in understanding the current 
political system and Putinism, if you will, in historical perspective. Can I ask each of you then to talk a little bit about uh, your biggest learning when you look back over the past 18 months of the full-scale invasion? Uh, through the lens of your study and, and your interests, what leaps out to you that you think uh, our listeners and everybody in this room today should understand? Well, I'll start because I just mentioned I've been traveling there every single year for almost 30 years. And in the last 10 years, having been affiliated with a research center, the International Center for the Study of World War II and its Consequences, I was in the 2010s in Moscow and other parts of Russia and former Soviet Union for 35 to 60 days a year. So I thought of myself as someone who knew the country pretty well. And it wasn't a mystery to me that there were mounting contradictions between this international cooperation and increasing declassification going right down to 2019 of archives, discussions that could be taking place at conferences anywhere in the world, the ones that we organized, and the mounting crackdown and the drumbeat leading up to the war. So I would come from these conferences and then turn on Channel One and they'd be ranting about World War III. And I was well aware that this had to somehow resolve itself. However, when the dam broke and the full-scale invasion began, it became clear to me that one thing many of us had not attributed significant enough attention to was 2014 and the start of this war in Ukraine, and that it was easy to shunt aside. And I think now, from today's perspective, we know that not only did it lead to the preparations for the war in terms of a long-term memory politics and propaganda inside Russia. And in a way, it looks like the war was prepared for many years, but also the effects of 2014 on Ukraine, on the consolidation of Ukraine as a nation, which led to the disastrous underestimation by Putin and those who launched the war. Thanks very much, Michael. Maria, I can see you're making notes already. Would you like to come in next? Thanks a lot. Yes, I wanted to echo everything that Michael said. And also to add to that, thanks to a project that I'm running here as a political scientist, I work on Russian elites. And there's two points I wanted to make in that regard. First of all, I think we underestimated along the same lines that Michael uh, flagged how serious the Russian elites were about their beliefs and how biased they were in those beliefs as well. They do live in their own world. And I think this goes beyond just Putin. That's actually the essence of the project that I'm doing here at Georgetown, trying to demonstrate that it's unfortunately is a very explosive mixture of the elites with the KGB background, as well as former Soviet nomenclature groups, the Soviet elites, who unfortunately inherited and preserved a very specific world outlook, which makes it very unlikely for them to be friendly with the United States anytime soon going forward. We did underestimate, however, how serious, as I said, and again, how biased the war in these perceptions of the world, which creates, of course, a very strong problem. Going forward, I think the U.S. and Western foreign policy altogether should be rethought with those considerations in mind. This repeated attempt to reset relationship with Russia, unfortunately, is unlikely to happen as long as we have these elites in power, given these really strong biases that they have against the West. And we should be looking at something else as a policy, for example, of long-term deterrence uh, of Russia. Another point I wanted to make, along with the elites, another factor in Russia is, of course, the Russian society. And this is where, again, we were a little bit too naive and optimistic about the possibilities of quick uh, modernization, which was unraveling within the Russian society. I don't want to underestimate these trends, but the sheer number of those groups, it has become apparent following the war, was just too small to radically affect this dynamic, while the rest of the society, the majority of the society, was both extremely acquiescent to policies of the Kremlin, even as horrible as they are, literally pushing the country in a really bloody and costly war. But at the same time, there's also an ideological aspect here. There's a lot of post-Soviet beliefs, syndromes, maybe um, unsatisfactions, which I think have found the expression in this imperialist, ambitious war of aggression that Putin has run. 
on. And again, I think that is something that many observers underestimated. Many thought that we will see much stronger resistance to this war within the Russian society than we actually saw. And unfortunately, what it means for the future is that we are likely to see Russia like transforming into some sort of a long-term Iran. Since we are not witnessing a lot of the resistance, domestic resistance, to these uh, horrible things that Putin does. Thank you very much, Maria. Jonathan, would you like to go next? Happy to. I think I have a much more narrow focus, of course, but in some ways it demonstrates how how all-encompassing this war has been and and continues to be. I, I think I'm looking at it in two particular ways when it comes to Israel in particular. I think that the first is that Israel is very much part of this story of the post-Soviet Union period. The numbers are sort of difficult to gauge accurately, but uh, some 15% or more of the population are quote-unquote Russian speakers, maybe half of them probably Ukrainians. And what that has meant for the political development of the country since the late 1980s in terms of the country's sort of very fractious politics, it's quite interesting. And I think that the second level is much more geopolitical, of course, and looking at the broader security situation and Russia more or less over the last decade or maybe less, and its position in the region, and in particular, its intervention in Syria, but not just Syria, but the sort of emergence of Russia as a power player in the Middle East also, I think is another interesting aspect of this story. Well, I've been making so many notes from all of your opening remarks. Uh, Diana, do you want to go finally sure. give me even more to write down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> One would assume that the Holocaust historian is the pessimist here, but I also want to highlight one more of a positive in this sea of despair and tragedy. I also want to point to the fact that actually also Putin miscalculated something and he miscalculated the level of solidarity that actually this time West showed towards Ukraine. And when you look back at what happened during the pandemics and you had a lot of reasons for pessimism, watching how different nations and different countries were trying to protect their own interests, especially at the beginning. And somehow you're almost like ready to lose faith in like international solidarity. But somehow in this situation, I felt like personally that I was able to regain this faith in international community. And seeing how countries were able to get off the needle of Russian gas and petrol, despite the suffering, economical suffering of their own populations and resistance to this economical suffering. It was impressive to see a concerted action from Western states and understanding that they're ready to stand by Ukraine no matter what this time. And they should have done this like much earlier. As Michael said, indeed, like 2014 should have been that time and probably they could have prevented the onslaught now, but better later than never. Well, thank you all of you for your opening remarks. Let's go straight in then and talk about Putin and the elites. I was really struck, Maria, by what you said about, as you called it, the explosive mixture of the sort of the, the post-Soviet KGB men and women around Putin and the people who make up the upper echelons of Russian society. So it got me thinking, could we talk a little bit about Putinism? I know Michael will want to talk about this, um, what it is, how it works. But also from you, Maria, I'm really curious on, can we have Putin without the elites? Do they come together? Because when we see from the West, we see you know, Putin at his long table on his own, but he's very much embedded in the system. And it'd be good to tease out what that means and how we might have miscalculated it in the West. Excellent. And in-depth questions, the type of questions that us academics like to receive. Thank you. I think it's both. Because Putin, I think, is both a product of the system, but also a factor that makes the system take this extremely toxic trajectory, so to speak. So he is a project of the system in the sense that he is of this late Soviet KGB background. He also was socialized in the KGB at the peak of the Cold War. And I think it's important to remember. So he was really brainwashed into anti-Westernism And we see the elements of those beliefs early on when he's on record in early 1990s. And even when he becomes Russian president with a fairly pro-Western agenda, he does voice 
raise uh, certain points about how Russia needs to stand for itself rather than following certain liberal trajectory, etc., etc. And certainly the, a lot of the beliefs that shaped Hidwul, you are a product of the Soviet system, which in my opinion also hasn't fully collapsed in the 1990s. It wasn't really so much of a democratic trajectory as a period of a temporary weakness of Russian federal center under both factors of lack of energy resources, but also Boris Yeltsin, who I think played a really rare liberalizing role uh, in Russian politics. But uh, with Putin, these two trends uh, quickly were curdled. Russia received a lot of energy resources, so it felt stronger. And Putin himself wasn't Yeltsin when it comes to his beliefs. And he, unfortunately, while being this product of this older Soviet system, also seems to take the Russia in probably one of the worst possible uh, directions. Given that, uh, for example, other actors on top of Russian politics who were seriously considered as possible presidential contenders in late 1990s, they'd often voice very similar beliefs about how Russia should stand up to the United States and whatnot. Primakov is really known as a creator, maybe, of Russian foreign policy kind of strategy that Putin then inherited and implemented. But of course, does it necessarily mean that Russia would have started this war with Ukraine? Does it mean that Russia would have started actually five wars as it did under Putin? I don't think it does because there's a lot of variation uh, within the system. And the acquiescence of the society and the elites that I mentioned before, the fact that Russia has this highly personalistic political culture, everybody tends to subordinate to whoever is the person on top, also shows how important uh, this role of the personalistic leader is. So how do you have somebody maybe with a more liberal, slightly less hawkish, aggressive stances, the trajectory would not have been maybe so catastrophic, even if I'm quite confident because of the structural factors in place, we would have seen a revanchist Russia resurging one way or another, but it may have been slightly a bad outcome to Ukraine. So much to discuss. I don't know where to begin, but I'll begin in a rather roundabout way, which is that another of the myths that we've seen explode after 2022 is the myth of the pragmatic Putin who is serving his national interests instead of this idea of a neo-imperial revanche. And one thing we can also talk about in terms of elites and the notion that he's infallible and he's made some incredible mistakes. But when we talk about the entire elites, I think we need to take a much bigger view than Putin, decisive as he is for the shocks that have rearranged the elites even recently, which have empowered, of course, the uh, power ministries and downgraded other parts of the elite. But when we take a very long view, and that's even not that long for a historian, but let's say post-World War II. After World War II, elites in Europe, for example, faced decolonization, wrenching political changes that took decades to accustom themselves to. The Soviet elite was largely isolated from many international trends. And so it then approached perestroika and 1991, having been still, you can see it now, still thinking in terms of spheres of influence after 91, which really went out of mode uh, in post-war Europe and much of great the international system, but from much earlier era. But many, many, many other things were sort of isolated. And what we see now is that 1991 was sort of an unfinished revolution. So you had the upper level, the top layer removed of the elites, but the middle and lower levels remained. And I've been reading Maria's excellent work, but there's also work by excellent social scientists in this country and from Russia, many of whom have now fled Russia, showing the continuity of elites, the nomenklatura or the children of nomenklatura who have persisted in high-level positions in Russia. So I think in future historians will look at the triangle 1991, where fundamental issues regarding the future political system, but also things like Crimea and relations between Russia and Ukraine were kicked down the road. 2014 and 2022, those are the landmarks that the people are going to analyze. Maybe just to make a small brief comment, because we talked so much about the elites and Putin and somehow how their values overlap and they share a lot of in common values. And I would say that also the Russian people 
And of course, Russian people are different. <laughs> and like, I'm trying to uh, somehow simplify here. So I want to make clear that they will meet somehow halfway their dictator because also in a broader sense, a lot of values also overlap among their ordinary Russian people and the elite view exactly. And I completely agree with what Maria said about this vision of grandeur, having these imperial dreams for a strong country, the desire of a strong leader. So many polls every time like show there is a preference for and also how especially the formative experience of 1990s, how it paved the way to this like very authoritarian style of leadership and how well Putin and the elites then took advantage of the narrative the, of the 1990s and the destruction that it brought to the country, the economical destruction and, of course, the disappearance of the status of a great country, how many ordinary Russians, because of that reality, started to see in very bad light, a lot of good concepts such democracy became a swearing word in the region because for them it just meant anarchy. It meant impoverishment. It meant West destroying Russia. So in a way, this very problematic legacy of the transition in 1990s transformed into a very toxic now attitude from the side of many ordinary Russians and was having a very aggressive agenda of changing. Now, this is a time to make changes and amendments. Jonathan, can I ask you, in your experience at the UN, what did you make of the approach to Russian foreign policy, if you came across it much? You talked about the, sort of the myth of the grandeur of the, and the glory of Russia that sort of Putin wants to exemplify. Did you see much of that? Do people take it seriously? Absolutely. I had the pleasure of working after the fall of the Qaddafi regime, working with the United Nations support mission in Libya. But just prior to the deployment of this mission, which was to support the post-Qaddafi transition, I think that there was a sort of watershed moment in the Security Council, in particular with the resolutions concerning Libya in particular. And if we think about it, and we say these words right now, it has a lot of resonance, a NATO intervention in Africa to topple a regime. And it was clear that there's a much bigger story, obviously, to tell, but the United States and Europe, essentially Western Europe, were working together. And it was clear that Russia, but also China and others, were essentially going to be cut out from this effort. And if you think about it and you think about the timing, and again, I'll leave it to my colleagues who are much more expert, of course, in the sort of decision-making process, not just in the Russian state, but Putin in general. But if you think about what's happening in 2011, and of course, Libya is one of several countries in the region that Russia has interests in. And then if you think about their engagement on the Security Council since then, the number of vetoes issued since then, and then, of course, what happens in Syria, and then finally, the decision to intervene and prop up the Assad regime, I think is very consistent with what I'm hearing, uh, just in terms of the type of behavior. And then, of course, when you think about, in particular, the symbolism of Syria, and the sort of Russian return to the region, of course, the Soviet Union played a significant role in the geopolitics and the story of the wars, the Arab-Israeli wars from 1956 onwards, 67, of course, 73, is very much in the context of the Cold War and Soviet action power. And so now this decision to prop up the Assad regime, whatever we think of the Assad regime, and of course, the, the horrific human rights atrocities, the death and destruction of what took place before the Russian intervention, since the Russian intervention, it in some ways restored this balance of power that predates the fall of the Soviet Union to a certain degree. And this is very much part of the Israeli calculation today, I think. It's not just about their actions on the ground in Syria, airstrikes. I think it's about a general understanding of the balance of power in the region. I'll pick up on some themes that were voiced by both Maria and Diana about the power of this idea of great power status, of restoring imperial greatness. I mean, the loss of empire is never easy for any country. But I think one 
myth that we saw exploded also after the war began was the one that there is no real ideology. The question that David asked was about Putinism, right? That it, it was about throwing dust in people's eyes, making them confused. It was all a postmodern, eclectic, you know, um, remember Pomerantsev's book, I think it was called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. So there was this kind of flexibility. There was no Marxism-Leninism that was doctrinal and according to text. But we now see that this idea of restoring Russia's hegemony and even control of core areas, and we're now seeing Belarus as well as Ukraine, was part of Putin's obsession with history was called History Man by Fiona Hill back in the early 2000s in their biography, right? Gaddison of Hill. And so I think that this notion, it may be better to call it an ethos rather than an ideology, but at its core, there are certain ideas. And one of them is to reverse this greatest catastrophe of the 20th century, which when that phrase was said in 2005, was sort of taken with a grain of salt. But Perhaps it really was the animating drive. If I may follow up on what Michael just said, it was perhaps a mistake to treat Putin's system as non-ideological or not related to ideology since Putin, since he comes to power, we see this consistent effort to instill a particular type of narratives, which first comes behind the scene. It's not very straightforward, but very soon after the first color revolutions unravel in the post-Soviet space, it picks up with a particular effort on the younger generations. And over the years, with each subsequent crisis that the Putin system faces, be it the color revolutions or the wars that Putin starts himself, we see a very consistent intensification in that brainwashing effort. In the middle 2010s, a very important development that it goes beyond the narratives alone. Now, Russians are actually encouraged to engage with those narratives through all sorts of events, historical tourism, maybe certain battle reenactments, all sorts of ways in order to push these grandeur narratives and make people engage with them, believe with them. And ultimately, in 2022, you probably have seen what happens. Essentially, we are witnessing complete rewriting of history or remaking of history because it has very little to do with history as we know it. And, uh, of course, the the officials now publicly are on record talking about the importance of returning to ideology. So the ideology is very much there. It was there from the start, I would argue. It just became much more consistent and systematic over the years. Very often, people who disagree with this claim that Putin and his regime do have an ideology, they'd say, hey, they're very flexible in their narratives, right? They keep changing what they're saying. Uh, but as a matter of fact, there are actually uh, five, six key tenets that are very consistent. Whether you call this overarching narrative as Novorossiya, Ruskim, Eurasianism, doesn't really matter as long as the underlying themes are the same. And those include this great power status, Russia's exceptionalism, is, uh, Russia as its own civilization, so to speak, which means that it's not subject to the international liberal rules. It gets the right to violate them. But one uh, important aspect is also statism, this absolute supremacy of the state in Russian politics. And it's, it's almost a sacrality of the state. It's so important, you don't question it. And then, of course, anti-Westernism uh, that comes with it, and also conservatism as themes that the Kremlin has been pushing forward. So I think it's also very important for us when we talk about the ways forward. This is the emergence of sort of an effort at developing a new ideology of the new emerging regime, which probably will have enough legitimacy to sustain itself for a while. If you'll allow me, I'll just throw this discussion of Putinism to connect it to my colleagues who are studying the Holocaust in Israel, because the key tenet of legitimacy after 91, and especially in the Putin years, and especially in the memory politics, was the victory over fascism in World War II. And in the 2010s, you see this kind of memory diplomacy, especially with Israel and Germany, in terms of positioning themselves as, you know, in the memory wars in Eastern Europe, 
in the other East European countries who may have collaborated with the Germans or who were indicted for collaborationism. And Russia was really using the history as a way of making an outreach to those two countries. But now with Zelensky as a Jewish president and the empowerment of the hard right inside Russia, I'm detecting a different tone on the Jews and Jewishness that I didn't see in Russia before, because Putin personally, reportedly, was not anti-Semitic. And Jews were allowed to be in high-level positions inside Russia, which they hadn't been in, let's say, the Brezhnev period, where there were real limitations. And so I'm detecting, once you empower this kind of imperial nationalism, which empowers the far-right nationalism within Russia, I wonder if we're going to see a kind of shift on these issues. Now, right now, we see some very strange statements coming out of Moscow, almost like we are philo-Semitic, but then anti-Zelensky, indicting Zelensky as a, as a Jew. And this was an article Jonathan sent me from the Communist Party newspaper Pravda, you know, indicting Zelensky for sending Ukrainians to die in battle because he's Jewish, right? And things like that, you know. So, I mean, I, I would say that these things are the World War II element and the victory over fascism seem a key part of whatever we're going to call the constellation of ideas and practices that are part of Putinism. I can say a couple of words about these memory words, <laughs> because I actually teach a course on this. And what Michael exactly is pointing out in about 2010, we do see a change of narrative about World War II, and especially the outcomes of World War II. And what is happening, and what is happening especially in Russia's eyes, is that a narrative that existed before and was kind of accepted by, well, almost everybody, it was presenting Russia as part of the victorious allies that liberated Europe from Nazism. And so since 2000, approximately 2009-2010, a different narrative was actually embraced, including by the West, that kind of cast aside that previous narrative together with Central and Eastern Europe that changed the narrative about Russia being actually not a liberator, but an occupier because they crushed the Nazis, but then they forgot to leave and they oppressed others. So that also had repercussions because it, in addition to destroying the vision of Russia as liberators, which was the pillar of Russian identity, it was one of the values accepted like widely inside Russian society. It also kind of cast a shadow on Russia's European identity. So it also created a desire maybe also to find their own values. I think I'm also thinking about this, like what is the source of these conservative values that they somehow embrace at a later stage compared with early 2000s? And it seems to me that this distinction and the desire to say, like, okay, if we are not accepted as we are as Europeans, we can like bring our own values to this Europeanness, and we are proposing an alternative way of being European, and like we are claiming to be followed by others. And sure enough, there are others that are looking at Russia as an alternative model of Europeanness to decadent West. The irony of that narrative is that Russia also claims to be the true Europe, the Europe that the other Europe, the liberal Europe, has lost. And here you have Russia, which, by the way, also has been atheist, official atheist for 70 years, claiming to represent the true Christian values and traditions uh, to the Europeans who have forgotten them. And there's a reason Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations was a bestseller in Russia, because as Maria was saying, the civilizational thinking, it seemed to be supported by that line of thinking, the book that was very <coughs> reputable in the United States and in the West. But there is a way in which Putinism is a hybrid of far left and far right elements because they're drawing on many Soviet practices 
and late Soviet practices because the elites remember the late Soviet period and reverting to certain practices, but also from World War II era, right, because now we're in the midst of another war and the ways of war evoke almost the 1940s and Fifth Columnist, his fifth column is a explicitly Stalinist concept from the era of the Great Terror. But Stalinism itself was a kind of a left-right hybrid. Elements of nationalism were drawn upon to bolster Bolshevism and communism. So, you know, then you have in the 90s these far-right trends resurrected in part by Putin himself, by promoting the philosopher Ilin and others, whole constellation of people who are now getting lots and lots of traction or hat worth in the 2010s. And civilizational thinking, if you dig a little deeper, also has almost biological racial notions. And so this notion of civilization as something separate, uh, and it also promotes a kind of uh, thinking, utilitarian thinking, because if you're serving the greater glory of a civilization, what does it matter if a million people suffer? It's not a humanistic ideology. Can we push this logic a little bit further? If Putin really believes what he says he believes, what does that mean for us in the West? What does it mean for policymakers if he believes that Russia really is an alternative source of truth, of civilization? And if he believes Ukraine really isn't a country, how should that change how the West approaches uh, dealing with it? Well, I don't think there's a one-on-to-one relationship between what leadership and press says and what they believe. Rather, what is propagandized reflects in a form that they think will be effective certain tenets, right? But, I mean, this war is going to have to come to an end sometime, right? At some point, relations have to be kept from getting too bad because Russia has a big nuclear arsenal and it's a very dangerous player in the world. So what do you do when, you know, with a a state that is sort of appearing to go rogue. I don't have any answers to that. My my colleagues in conflict resolution might have some ideas. Michael made a very important point. It's a nuclear power status. And I think what, what we probably understood about Putin during the entire period, unlike any other leader, he is willing not just to say words. He is really willing to do dangerous actions. And there are very few such leaders in history where we have seen it happening. It's exactly why he is compared to Hitler. Not too many statesmen are ready to inflict danger at this extent and loss on their own populations. And also they are not ready to take such high-stake risks. And it's clear that he is one who is ready to do this. So he's an extremely dangerous person, not just for his own country, for neighbors, but he can be a dangerous leader probably for the entire world. So whatever we do, we should keep this in mind, that whenever results of the war will come, if it's in the battlefield or something, if there is one leader who would use the nuclear bomb, he's probably that one. The element of brinksmanship has been there many times during this war. So yes, it's a conundrum because on the other hand, I'd I do believe that there are more pragmatic actors within the Russian political system. Maria would know more than I do, but you think of Sabyanyan or other sort of technocratic figures who have been perhaps marginalized by the war. But I was just reading uh, Vladimir Karamurza's piece in the Washington Post, where he said something very true, which is that in Russian and Soviet history, things can change extremely quickly. Things can turn on a dime. And we saw that with Prigozhin's march on Moscow in a dramatic way. And we may see other twists and turns like that. So there's good news, there's bad news. The good news, I have to say, partly is uh, the function of the Western position altogether. Because until now, and it's been a year and a half in this war, there's still no very clear strategy coming from the United States and the administration. What is it that they ultimately want to do with Russia and Ukraine, right? They officially would say they back Ukraine's victory, but they never define clearly what Ukraine's victory is. And surprise, Ukraine's victory also highly conditional on uh, U.S. policies in this war, including the amount of 
weapon supply. And while the administration certainly deserves a lot of credit, especially for the beginning of this war, the disclosure of the intel in order to prevent Russia's false flag operation, as well as unprecedented levels of support for Ukraine, unfortunately, it's still not enough to decisively allow Ukraine uh, to win. Moreover, the tools that were applied to contain Russia, such as sanctions, unfortunately do not seem to work as well. And Russia being a very big, powerful country, we also still are learning what works and what doesn't With when you, for example, sanction countries like Russia. That's the bad news. Uh, I also see some good news here because Russia has shown a lot of limits to how much damage it can incur. And unfortunately for Ukraine, it is a lot of damage for Ukraine. But we also know that Russia's, for example, conventional army is by far not the second strongest army in the world, which has been exposed. And effectively, one of the reasons why Putin keeps playing this nuclear card, frankly, it's the only one he's got left. He does not have much else. And that's, by the way, the good news here is that maybe that's why he wouldn't be using it because honestly, without this card, he doesn't really have anything at all at his disposal. So Russia has a lot of limits and it's very unclear how sustainable the current situation is for the regime. On surface, it does look sustainable. The economic cost of this war is quite manageable for Putin and he can continue for a while. But with the accumulated effect of sanctions, with the unpredictability of the energy prices, with still continuous erosion of the well-being of the Russian population, there might be a limit, especially if the West is willing to maybe take more proactive measures and try to implement something more of an embargo strategy, even if it's going to be definitely a dangerous gamble, given Russia's share on the, in the energy market. So overall, we're just witnessing a very kind of unstable balance where both sides are still figuring out how many assets they have in their disposal. But I would argue a lot of what we are seeing is as a function of the unwillingness of the West to decisively come up with certain proactive policy towards Russia. There's still this desire to handle Russia as an acute crisis, as many of the security strategists put it, and forget about it. And Russia just doesn't want to be forgotten. It just, it's a problem that has to be dealt with. And I think that's something that we should learn and adapt and change going forward. Maybe just to jump in on that and also to bring up maybe Michael's point. From a conflict resolution perspective, there is so much effort right now, and I just see this with former colleagues of mine, and rightly so, on the day after in Ukraine, rebuilding Ukraine, ad nauseum discussions down the streets at the World Bank, and the amounts of money that have been allocated. And again, rightly so, I think that's a huge issue. But this is the question. I think that this is the sort of blind spot, exactly as Maria has, has said. What happens in Russia? How long does this take? What toll does the war take on Russia? Again, not out of concern for the regime, for Putin by any stretch, so not to be misinterpreted in any way. But ultimately, Russia also will have a day after and what happens there. And this is where you need that type of leadership coming from the United States. It's not going to come from the bureaucrats, sorry, to my former colleagues, but at the United Nations and IFIs. Uh, I was just nodding in agreement. <laughs> Maybe I just wanted to say something about what Michael commented about the elites and that the right elites there that maybe will have a different agenda. Uh, it's true. And we also know now that before the war, we now have insights that Putin started even like to consult with the elites around about the cost of the war. And we also now know that many of the people around him although they did not understand at the time what Putin was trying to find out, but they understood that it's something aggravating the situation in Ukraine, and they were advising him against this. And look what happened. He just disregarded all the advice because like, he had discussions like for several weeks before with each and every person in charge with various segments of economy, army, and so on. And everybody was saying that this position is untenable. We should not because it will damage Russia. Yes. It was not only this initial miscalculation. Everyone knows now, the world knows, the way the invasion was planned was militarily inept. And there was this notion that you would just get to Kiev in three days and change the regime, and there would be a new pro-Russian regime. But when that failed, he doubled down, tripled down, and quadrupled down many, many times since then. So I do think that these pragmatic voices, 
and also the hugely talented Russian diaspora that has been created by the war that are scattered all across the Eurasian rim of Russia and Kazakhstan and, and Georgia and Armenia, but also in Berlin and the United States and the rest of the world. That is a resource for a future Russia, but you cannot imagine that, you know, hope in the interwar period of the 20th century, many of these world-famous uh, scholars ended up driving taxis, but we now live in the age of the internet, and perhaps there can be a preservation of this talent, who knows, but again, historians don't like to predict the future, right? But we do, I think, have an obligation to, a lot of our knowledge, for example, depends on some of this whole internationalized social science and history and other scholarship that was done by these Russians who are now in very difficult times in emigration. I would say let's start to draw to an end the first part of this special podcast talking about Putin, Putinism in Russia. So I'll just ask you all just to sum up your remarks and maybe do give us a sense of what you think might come next. Michael, can I stay with you just to start this off? You talked about visiting Russia year after year, seeing Putin, seeing the regime. Do you think it was always going to end this way? Well, I wasn't as surprised by the invasion itself when the troops were massing on the border. I expected it to happen, unlike many, but I did not expect Putin to take such a catastrophic turn against what objectively by many, many people might be seen as Russia's national interests, to take anti-Westernism to such a degree. Because Russia has always had a kind of love-hate relationship with the West, but this we're now in a new... I think, unprecedented situation where uh, the willingness to cut ties with the West has reached levels that one did not see even under Stalinism, although the level of violence is far from level of, I'm not comparing the two, I'm just saying on this one particular point. So no, I didn't, I think to sum up my remarks, what we've seen when we say Putinism, right, ism implies there's a certain weight to it. It implies that it's a historical phenomenon, and it implies that it has a system of ideas. And I think we've seen both of those coalesce in the 2010s. 2011 was the Moscow demonstrations that Jonathan was alluding to, 2011, 2014 with the invasion and the crackdown. Since then, you saw a kind of harder line version, but now in 20. 22 and after, you've seen a kind of wartime Putinism that has really taken on new characteristics. And because it's a left-right hybrid, it's not just a recreation of something we've seen in the past. We're sort of in uncharted territory. And I, I think one scenario is that the leader does die and that the system does die with him. Say maybe something else that definitely related to the war and Putinism. It was um a shock to me, as probably to many other millions of people, to see how Putin, because of this imperial agenda, managed to untie two very closely related people. Whatever you think about Ukraine and Russians, it was a degree of closeness that you wouldn't see among any other nations. You did have parts of culture overlapping, history overlapping. You did have a number with probably talking about like 50 million people having relatives in both borders. So having parents and in-laws, you do talk about highly intertwined people. So how he managed to destroy, to really cut in all those ties because of this imperial agenda. And I think it came to a shock to millions of people in both Russia and Ukraine. And just people in Russia, I think in their shock, they just went silent without commenting that much on, on their shock that they experienced. And also, ironically, in his so-called attack on fascism and nationalism, he actually, what he's doing, he's strengthening an identity in Ukraine that's totally anti-Russian and it's going to be there until many, many years in the future. Well, yeah, but I will say it's not just Putin, right? But it also a large part of the Russian society that unfortunately at least acquiesces, if not willingly embraces these atrocities that Putin and his soldiers are committing in Ukraine and all these horrible steps. So I think as much as I agree with you, Diane, I also think that it goes beyond just Putin alone. And I think you agree with that as well. So which brings us to your question, David, about sustainability of Putinism beyond Putin. The answer to this question ironically depends on also how long the 
the situation lasts and when Putin leaves. Because in general, as we have discussed, Putin's system, I think, is really well fit to some in-depth post-imperial syndromes and post-Soviet nostalgias that are haunting a significant share of the Russian society. And in that sense, it does cater to certain in-depth demands on the society. Add to that the really significant increase in well-being that Russians have experienced under Putin, at least throughout the 2000s. So all of that certainly creates a legacy of Putinism that's actually quite appealing to an average Russian. Not just their well-being has increased, but it's also like this grandeur, the great power status. They now feel better about themselves and the country, which we see consistently through the polls. Having said that, as long as Putin stays in power for a while and there's economic stagnation, if not decline, unraveling, and also conditional on maybe some military gains of Ukraine on the ground, this situation potentially has a chance to change over the time into some sort of perception of late Soviet Union when the fatigue of the system has spread and people were not really trusted official ideology. They didn't believe in it. So from that perspective, I think the longer Putin stays in power, the more he sort of undoes the things that he has done from the start. But it does create a very appealing strategy for his successor to just appeal to the earlier part of his heritage, saying, hey, we just want to go back to the early Putin's years when Russia was great again, right, when the economy was rising. And probably if that person appears, probably after Putin dies, based on what we know about personalistic systems, it's unlikely that Putin's going to be replaced until he dies naturally. At that point, that other person probably will want to reset the relationship with the West. So I think one lesson that we learned from all of this, that under no circumstances should we grant these concessions to this successor of Putin unless there's some really serious concessions are made by Putin, his regime and the system in order to avoid something like horrible as this to repeat in the future. I think it was Adana that talked about this sort of dangerous and unprecedented approach from Putin on talk and actions. We might have heard some of this narrative before, but I think that at least thinking about the Jewish world beyond just Eastern Europe in general, the use of the rhetoric, denazification, again, Diana talked about this as far as the history of World War II is concerned and, and, and the role of the Soviet Union in particular. But I think it's added to a very complex challenge right now of narrative. This is, objectively speaking, a time in a rise in anti-Semitism. We see it in the United States and we see it uh, across the globe. And to hear these words and then Zelensky, we talked about him as an individual, as a Jewish person, as the president of Ukraine, who is supposed to be, according to the Russian narrative, in charge of this Nazi effort. It sounds a little bit ridiculous, but it's also incredibly confusing. And again, this sort of overall challenge of narrative when we are struggling in the context of Jewish studies to find better and more effective ways to teach the Holocaust and talk about these issues, to have this rhetoric as part of the overall discussion is somewhat jarring. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter, You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.